You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Jeff Montgomery is the all-time saves leader for the Kansas City Royals with 304 saves. He never blew away hitters, but he got the job done very well. He allowed an opponent's batting average of 249 with game in late and close situations, according to baseball reference. And he was even better with two outs and runners in scoring position. As is the case with most closers, he was better in save situations than he was in non-save situations with a career OPS allowed 77 points better when in a save situation than when the team was behind. Jeff played 14 games for his hometown Cincinnati Reds before being traded to the Royals for outfielder Van Snyder, one of the best trades in Royals history. While he may not have welcomed that move at the time, Kansas City welcomed him, and he spent the next 12 years pitching for the Royals, and he's lived in Kansas City ever since. He's been part of the Royals television network for the last 12 years. This time it doesn't appear his career is winding down. So, Monty, welcome to Sports Connections. Well, thank you, David. Glad to be a part of it. All right, let's start with baseball, and we'll probably go back and forth with baseball and other stuff. I'm going to talk about, and you talk about this on the air all the time, the pressure of being a closer. Talk about how different it is to pitch in the ninth inning with your, you know, when you're trying to protect the lead, how different it is from any other inning. Well, I, I always felt like when they trust you to get the last out of the game, and I don't care if it's the last out or the last five outs or seven outs, whatever it might be, uh, that's a responsibility that uh, should not be taken lightly. I think it's something that you uh, kind of go out there, and I always would say it's kind of like being on the uh, high wire without a net under you. So there's really, <laughs> you know, there's no margin for error. If you don't do your job, then the uh, the results are not pretty. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like that was something that um, – you know, once you're established and get, you know, you're given that responsibility, uh, it's something that you have to very uh, take very um, serious. And it's a lot more important than maybe pitching in an 11-1 ball game just to get some, get through the game. And yeah. uh, so I, I just felt like that was something that um, a lot of players go one direction or another based on the situation. Uh, for me, fortunately, I, I went in, the, in, in a better direction when it was a, a more intense situation, uh, whether it be a tough situation with runners or a tough situation with the game. Uh, it seemed like it made me a little better. Uh, some guys, it's a little more difficult. I remember uh, we were in Cleveland one year, and I'd pitched like three games in a row, and uh, I believe it was uh, Bob Boone was maybe managing – uh, and he said, look, he goes, you got the day off. And I, so I'm, I'm not even going to be pitching that day. Well, it, it turns out to be a safe situation. And Billy Brewer was uh, the guy that was going to uh, be asked to get the last three outs of the game. And he did. It was an intense situation. He gets the last three outs of the game. He earns the save. And after the game, he comes to me and he said, man, he goes, you can have that job. Because that's, <laughs> that's, and, and Cleveland is one of the worst places uh, or the most difficult places to close out games anyway, especially back in those days when they had, you know, uh, sellouts for all those consecutive games and their crowd was kind of like a, uh, you know, an extra man on their team. But uh, that's, to me, that's what it's all about. But It's interesting, Monty, I guess for those of us who never uh, played major league baseball, much less ever closed a game, it seems like it would, you know, if your team's up by one run in the eighth inning, 
there's still a lot of pressure there. It's just, you're the, you're the final tight wire. You know, if, if you're in the eighth inning, you're doing a tight wire, but if you, if you fall, well, the, the team has a chance to come back in the ninth inning. You're, if you, if you fail, especially if you're on the road, if you fail game over, is that the, the difference? And is that why some guys just can't handle that pressure? Well, I, I, I would assume that, that everyone handles it differently. And like I mentioned, I, it made me a little better. Uh, some guys, they kind of crumble. And we've seen it so many times over the years, guys that, uh, you know, they have some great games. Uh, they're never pitching in leverage situations. Once they go into leverage situations, whether regardless of the inning, it could be the seventh or it could be the ninth inning, we see guys, uh, they kind of crumble. Uh, and I think a lot of it is they allow the situation uh, you know, to deter them from success. And I think when I look at, um, you know, those situations, uh, it was just for me, I would always pitch to the situation. I would always look at it as it's an advantage to me. And the reason I would say that is that, hey, I've got a one, two or three run cushion normally to work with. Uh, we hear about situational hitting all the time. Right. I, I felt like situational pitching was just as important as situational hitting. A lot of a lot of pitchers, I don't think, really factor that in. They're just saying, "Hey, I got to get three outs, and I can't give up a run." Well, sometimes you can give up a run. Sometimes it's okay yeah. to give up a run if you get a two or three run cushion. And I felt like that was really probably um, something that helped me kind of navigate through some of those waters. Just the ability to kind of slow things down, uh, analyze it, take a look at the situation, and pitch to that situation. And I talked in the introduction that you didn't have the the dominating stuff of uh, even, you know, uh, Josh Stalmont, for example, you know, and Scott Barlow has has uh, done some closing for the Royals. Obviously, Greg Holland has the most uh, opportunities this year. And we say he doesn't have he doesn't have the dominating stuff. He's only 93 to 94 with his fastball. Josh is in, you know, Josh and Scott are in, in the upper 90s. You, you topped out around 91, 92, didn't you? My, my working range was 88 to 90. That was my best working range. Now, I could throw 91. I, I think I was clocked at 93 occasionally, but that was not my best range. Um, and I remember I had shoulder surgery in 1996. I come back from surgery, and, and the goal was to be able to get back to where I was before. And oftentimes that's measured with a radar gun. So yeah. in spring training in 1997, it seemed like everything I did, they had a radar gun on me. It seemed like every time I brushed my teeth, they were seeing how fast <laughs> can I brush my teeth. And, 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 and I got away from my kind of style of performing. I got, a, I got into a more of a power uh, mindset where all I want to do is impress the radar gun. And I'm throwing 92, 93 occasionally. Uh, spring training, I make the team out of spring training, uh, which was ahead of schedule for, with, with regards to my shoulder surgery, which was in September of the previous year. So I'd worked really hard. I wanted to be on that open day roster. Uh, I was able to light the radar gun up enough for them to take me, uh, you know, with the club. Well, unfortunately, uh, that mindset didn't work for me. Uh, I remember the first daughter I faced in, in Baltimore, um, on opening day was Rafael Palmero. He hits a home run and it was a 93 fastball. And it just, I, I kept, I kind of went the opposite direction. We always talk about when teams are s struggling, they're slumping. Uh, sometimes you try too hard. Uh, 
Yeah. And that's what happened with me that season is I got into a situation where I was trying too hard. I was trying to overthrow the baseball. So I remember I, uh, I contemplated retiring and, 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 and my pitching coach, Bruce Keeson and Bob Boo, my manager, my trainer and team doctor, they said, look, you've worked too hard to not give this thing a little bit more time. So they, they shut me down and I wasn't injured. I just, yeah. uh, I wasn't performing. So they shut me down to, to allow me to kind of take a, a little bit of a step back and, 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 and then regroup. So I remember we were in Oakland and we had some younger players. I think Joe Randa was one of those guys and maybe Jermaine Dye. I can't remember who else was with us, but anyway, um, I, I'm out at two o'clock in the afternoon throwing batting practice to these guys and just live BP because they weren't getting a lot of plate appearances uh, as they were not everyday players at that time. So um uh, I remember I, I'm throwing my slider and it's really good. I'm throwing my fastball and it's really good. And there were no radar guns out there. Yeah. And I wasn't worrying about trying to throw 92. Uh, but these guys are missing and they're hitting, you know, soft ground balls. And Keeson, Bruce Keeson, my pitching coach, said, he goes, that is what we want to see. He goes, that's what we want to see out of you. And I was having a good late life on my fastball. I was, you know, my slider had good, good late life to it. And from that time on, I got right back to norm, but it was, it took me almost three months to get there because of my uh, desire to light up that radar gun. So everyone would perceive me as being healthy. It, it's interesting, Monty. Uh, I was listening to the game on the radio yesterday. Normally I watch them on TV if I'm not at the game, uh, but I was listening on the radio because my wife and I were going, uh, going to a family gathering and one of the announcers, I won't say who, because I think he didn't, mean to say it this way he said he was talking about somebody with a case of the try too hards uh, as as we like to say but he said he's instead of trying hard he needs to he needs to try less and that's not what he meant he doesn't mean try less he meant try easier mm-hmm. and there's a big difference the you know I, I think it's time to explain what it means to try easier right it doesn't mean give it less effort it just means don't go beyond your capabilities that I want you to explain. I didn't do a very good job of it. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is uh, when you're uh, trying too hard, you're either trying to do something you're not capable of doing. Okay. Either. uh, And I see this a lot with young players, guys who have had tremendous levels of success. They, They arrive in the major leagues for the first time and they try too hard. They try to be somebody they're, they're not. Um, and they, they get away from their game a little bit like I was describing with coming back from my, from my shoulder surgery. Uh, so you're trying to do things that you're not capable of doing or things that are impossible to do. You can't hit a six run home run in baseball. <laughs> you, you just can't do it. And, and, but we oftentimes we see people try too hard to do things that either they're not capable of doing or virtually impossible to do. So I think that's what, the, you know, when you're, when you're saying try too hard. So the, if you try easier, okay, suddenly you're allowing your body to, to replicate the mechanics that you've trained yourself uh, in order to uh, accomplish the results. And I think that's what happens if you kind of step back and you try easy, suddenly you get back into your form. You get back into the mechanics, whether yeah. you be a hitter with your stroke or if you be a pitcher you know, with your uh, delivery, you get back into your mechanics and then you can repeat those mechanics over and over and over again, because 
it's very difficult to recognize it when you're watching a game on TV uh, or even if you're at the ballpark watching a game, uh, say, for example, when a pitcher gets out of his mechanics, it's really difficult to see right. it. Yeah. But the hitter will let you know. And the reason the hitter lets you know, because you, you can just be off by one ounce, okay? One ounce. You can be off by one degree on your arm angle. You can be off such a small amount from your norm that you've trained yourself so diligently to, you know, to accomplish, it makes a big difference where the ball ends up. If the ball doesn't end up where you want it to end up. If it's in the middle part of the strike zone, the results are damaging. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's the art of it. That's the, that's the, the tricky part is figuring out how do I get back into those mechanics? And, and before anybody thinks that trying easier uh, is a bad idea, the, the first person I ever heard, use that analogy was George Brett. And certainly if George Brett says try easier is better than trying too hard, I'll take his word for it. He had, he had a decent career, didn't he? He did okay. I think Cooper sounds a pretty good uh, benchmark. Now, the, the Royals struggled a lot during your tenure as a pitcher. How hard was it to be a, a closer for a team that didn't give you a lot of save opportunities? It was not hard at all. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same if you're pitching on a, a championship level team. Really? I mean, every day you prepare yourself somewhat cliche, but, uh, you know, anything that happened, uh, you know, before the day that you went to pitch, it doesn't matter whether it be with yourself or with your team. So every day uh, would be exactly the same for me. That's interesting. I, I that surprises me because um, you see teams, you know, when in September, when they've been eliminated, some guys seem like they're just going through the motions and other guys still play, you know, still play all out and, and still give it a hundred percent effort. And um, it, it's interesting that that mindset, and, and maybe that's why you were successful. You were as successful as you were because you didn't let the, the situation of the team, you only let the situation of that particular game, you're called into the game. So it's a safe situation most likely, and you're expected to perform. That's what impacted you. Not what the record was coming into the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have a job to do. And oftentimes we'll say there are times when you have to play for the name on the front of the Jersey. And there are times when you have to play for the name on the back of the Jersey. And there are times that uh, whether it be pride or it be uh, your career at stakes. Yeah. I would play for the name on the back of the Jersey uh, just as much. As I would play for the name on the front of the Jersey because I, I could not allow myself to go out uh, and embarrass my team or myself. Yeah, I, I don't think you were on the broadcast crew um, when Ray Sanchez played for the Royals. Um, Tony Pena was manager, and they started really well one season and then went in the tank, and, and Tony famously told the players, stop playing for the name on the back of the jersey, play for the name on the front of the jersey, and shortstop Ray Sanchez came out with his jersey on backwards. And it just broke everybody. It, let, it loosened up the tension. Uh, but I understand what you're saying. You know, you, you got to play for the team, but you also have to look out for yourself. Right. There's pride involved. I mean, I can't allow myself to be embarrassed by my competition uh, because it eventually is uh, it goes on my record as well as it goes on the team's record. Yeah. The ba your baseball card doesn't show the team's record each right. year. <laughs> it shows yours. So um, now it's interesting. I was doing a little research on you and, and I know I've known you for well since you were pitching. Uh, for the Royals. Um, so at more than 20 years now, um, 
I did not realize that you were one of only 23 pitchers. Well, at the time, it was only 23 pitchers in Major League Baseball history to pitch an immaculate inning. And that's you face only three batters. You get three strikeouts on nine pitches. So nine, nine strikes, no balls in play. Uh, and that's called an immaculate inning. And I was surprised. I, didn't, I wasn't surprised that you did that because you had good strikeout stuff, but that you, that you were only the 23rd pitcher to do that when you did it in 1990. Why do you think that's so rare? Well, I didn't think it was so rare when I did it, to be honest. I came off the field and said, hey, you just tied a major league record. And I realized that I'd struck out the side on nine pitches. I didn't even know it was called an immaculate inning. And I said, yeah, me and a thousand other guys, right? And nobody said anything. And I don't think anybody else had any yeah. idea of the rarity. So maybe um, a week or so later in Sports Illustrated, they came out with a list. I think I was the seventh in the American League ever to do it. Yeah. Obviously, National League with the pitchers hitting, probably a little more common because yeah. not that you get a freebie with a pitcher, but it's still a little, uh, you know, if in the American League, you're facing three hitters, right? Yeah. So anyway, I, um, I look back on that and I remember one of the, um, one of the hitters was Pete Incavilia. And Pete Incavillio was a big power hitting slugger. Yeah. And um, I end up, I didn't throw a strike to him. There were no pitches in the strike zone. And I, th I can't remember if he's a second or third batter, but his, you know, his, uh, I guess if you're looking at him as far as scouting him, he would chase pitches because he wanted to hit the ball a long way. Yeah. And I think I threw him a slider uh, down and away, swings and misses it. And then I threw a fastball like up, like letter high, and he swings through it. And I threw another one higher than that, probably neck high, and he swings and misses that. So I didn't throw him any strikes, but I got three strikes on him. So, uh, <laughs> it was just coincidental that it happened during the uh, immaculate inning because, you know, again, it's one of those things that if you're trying to do that, it's probably almost impossible to do it. Yeah. But if you, if, if you just let it happen, you try easy, you let it happen, just stay in your – you know, in your mechanics, within yourself, good things can happen. And that's a great example of situational pitching. You knew that Pete Incavilia, I mean, great hitter. I remember him at Oklahoma State. So I've been, I've been fond of his game, at least parts of it, for, for a long time. But you knew that he would chase. You know, a lot of – it's amazing the stats that are available now. And you and Joel on the pre- and post-game, when you're on the – you know, in the fourth inning, when you're on the broadcast, you talk about chase rates and stuff like that of, of batters and also of pitchers who get batters to chase a lot of uh, balls outside the strike zone. You knew he had a high chase rate. You may not have called it that at the time, but you knew you didn't have to throw him a strike. In fact, it was probably better not to. So that was a good example of situational pitching. Don't give him something he can hit. Give him something that he can't hit that he'll try to hit anyway. Yeah, and, that, and that's the whole thing with, um, you know, the way the game has changed from, you know, back in the mostly 90s when I played and the game today, the information available. Uh, I, I probably had a fairly similar um, book, so to speak, on hitters as they have today. It's just today they're very, very uh, detailed yeah. and you, there's, it's too much to put in your brain. I had everything upstairs. I didn't have a notebook. I didn't have, I had everything uh, in my brain from, you know, previous experience with hitters. And I had to, I had to massage that information as well. Yeah. Um, 
and I'll give you an example. We would have a, a meeting before every series and talk about the opposing hitters. And I'll never forget, we're playing the Tigers. It was the first time I'd ever pitched against the Detroit Tigers. And it, the, the scouting report on Lou Whitaker was his bat slowed down. You can beat him in. So I remember I go in the game, I faced Lou Whitaker, and I threw him my best fastball in, and he hit it in right field GA for a home run. Uh, now, Brett Saberhagen could beat him in if his yeah. bat had slowed because he threw in the mid-90s. Yeah. Well, I'm, a, I'm an upper 80s guy, and I kind of did Lou Whitaker a favor. So I learned when I go in those pitchers' meetings and I hear these scout reports, I put this imaginary set of earplugs in my ears because I didn't really <laughs> want to hear it because it, it didn't pertain to me yeah. the way that it did to, to a lot of other of our pitchers. So I, I found that it was better for me to watch the hitters, um, whether you watch them some during batting practice or you watch them during the course of the game. Yeah. I, I watch hitters and I, and, I, and I could kind of visualize you know, what I'm going to do with this hitter when I face them. And sometimes I'm, 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 I'm developing this scouting report during the course of a game. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a pitch that I think is the right pitch and he fouls it straight back. I'm suddenly I, I better change gears a little bit here and take a little bit off the next pitch. So uh, not only in, in, during a game, but even during an at bat against a particular oh, oh, player, sure. you're, you're going to make that adjustment. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one thing where the today's players and more, more, specifically pitchers get in trouble they 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 get too locked in on you know they let them have the little piece of paper they'll pick it up and they'll look at this piece of paper and yeah. figure out how i'm gonna pitch i mean a funny story here i was watching the blue jays a couple years ago and uh i can't remember their pitcher but their pitcher gets his hat and he takes his little piece of paper out and he realizes he has a scout report for the wrong team okay <laughs> He actually had to call the, the the pitching coach out and 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 give him the right scout report so he could figure out how he's going to pitch the batters. I mean, he the 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 amount of reliability that they have on these scout reports they they they've gotten away from just being yeah. artists out there and and they're they're more like uh, robots now. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. they, they they really. Uh, everything's done for them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Whereas I, I think I don't, I don't particularly like that style. Yeah. But you know, the thing is that, that those scouting reports are statistics of the past. They don't count what's happening today. They don't count how you have done uh, against that particular player. Uh, they don't count whether you're having a good day or a bad day. They don't count whether you have a little bit of, you know, tightness in your shoulder. They, they don't count maybe the most important stuff. You know, my all-time favorite baseball quote, we laugh about it, uh, is Yogi Berra's that 90% of the game is half mental, which I know you're a, you're a, a very smart guy. You went to Marshall University. Have, I don't remember what your degree is in. It's some kind of engineering, isn't it? Com uh, computer science. Computer science. So you analyze things really well. So that if you if we're analyzing, it means game is between 45 percent and 55 percent mental if we take Yogi uh, at his word. But the really the truth is that everybody in baseball that's playing in Major League Baseball is an exceptional athlete, an exceptional baseball player. And the mental part is is so critical. And I think maybe people think of that on the hitting side, but not, not so much on the pitching side. It's probably more mental 
a, more of a mental game on the pitching side. Do you think that's accurate? Because you have to adjust to, you know, if a guy's four for four, you can't treat him like he's over four. You've got to treat him like he's got his hitting shoes on and you have to analyze pitch to pitch. Is that true? It absolutely is true. And I, I, the way I would look at it is this as a hitter from the middle side. Okay. You have to do a lot to convince yourself that you're going to be successful because the best they make out seven out of 10 times. Right. Now, now me as a pitcher, I think of it exactly the opposite. I think in, if I can throw a strike, I got a 70% chance of getting this guy out. Yeah. I mean, I like my odds. And that's why I, when you're talking about situational um, hitting and pitching, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm into a one run game. Uh, I give up a hit or a walk to lead off the, the inning. I got a man on first. They bunt him to second base. Okay. I say, thank you very much. I now have been given one third of my, of my job is done for me yeah. by that sacrifice that you made. Now I've got two batters up there and I've got a, I've got a 70% chance of getting both of them out. I like my odds a lot better than I like their odds. Yeah. And yeah. then on, on top of that, if, if one of those two does get a hit and drive in that run, it's still a tie game. I still have a chance to win when we come to bat in the bottom of the ninth inning. Yeah. So that's why I say that the, the situation is so important. Yeah. And you know, there's such a mental play there uh, on allowing those situations to help you understand me as a pitcher. I've got tremendous odds against my, uh, the opposition. Yeah. Let's use those to our advantage. That's a great point. And, and talking about situations, the, the next situation I want to ask you about you grew up near Cincinnati and you were drafted by the Reds. How cool was that? Well, it's a dream come true for me. Uh, I grew up, you know, during the uh, big red machine era and all the great players that played for the Reds during that period of time. Uh, you know, that was my life. I mean, I, when I was yeah. in, when I was in high school, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd go on dates and I'd have the Reds, baseball game on the radio. You know, I mean, that's how serious I was about the Cincinnati Reds. So uh, I'll never forget, I, 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 I'm drafted in the, in the 83, I get drafted by the Reds and I was golfing with my father and we get to the fourth hole and, and we see my mom and my sister up by the, by the green of the fourth hole and my mom's waving her arms and we, we go up there and she hands me a telegram from the Cincinnati Reds informing me that I've been drafted in the ninth round. So I'm thinking, gosh, I'm going to Riverfront Stadium. You know, little yeah. I know, I had a five-year route to get there through Billings, Montana, and Tampa, Florida, Burlington, Vermont, uh, Denver, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, I had a long route to get there. Yeah. Uh, instead of a little, you know, two-hour drive from my little hometown in Ohio, I had a, a, a much longer route uh, in order to get there. But it was all worth it. Um, it was just such a thrill for me. Uh, my, my favorite player growing up was Pete Rose. Pete Rose was my first major league manager. So it was truly a dream come true for me. And then you pitched 14 games that first season. I mean, after you finally made it, made it up uh, with the, with the big league club, played 14 games and then you get traded. Talk about your reaction to that. Obviously it's turned out pretty well for you, but talk about your reaction at the time. Well, you mentioned earlier that, you know, 
I, I was I go from my hometown team to probably uh, disappointed to be traded away. But honestly, the day I was traded, I was the happiest player in baseball. Really, I was because. Uh, I had some good games and some bad games in my 14 games with the Reds. Um, I started out throwing the ball really well. And I had a, I had one start. I, I pitched in 700 career games and 699 of those were in relief. Yeah. But I, but I did have one start with the Reds and uh, I think I went like five innings, get you know knocked out for a pinch hit or whatever. And I never really pitched much uh, the rest of the season. It seemed like I was just kind of a mop up man. Um, and I didn't like my chances of making the big league club and 88. So, uh, you know, I, I, it was about a week before camp opened up and I get a phone call from the Reds farm director informing me that I've been traded to the Royals. And I was excited because I'd, I'd never heard of Bud Black and Mark Gubasaw. I think the only guys I knew of was, were George Brett, Brett Saberhagen, Bo Jackson, and, um, Dan Quisenberry. I think those are the only players that I, that I ever even heard of. Cause I was such a national league guy. Yeah. I'd never heard of Frank white or Willie Wilson or, you know, a, a lot of these guys. And, and, you know, so I'm getting traded to the Royals. I'm thinking, gosh, I'm going to make this team. I got a real good chance of making this team. So I get the spring training camp, you know, a week later uh, in baseball city, Florida. And one of the first people I met was uh, our general manager, John Sherholtz. And John informed me about 20 minutes into my major league career with the Royals that I'm going to be sent to Omaha to become a, a, a closer. And uh, it was just my, you know, the wind was immediately out of my sails because yeah. I'm thinking I'm going, I'm going to make the club to, you know, 20 minutes into my first day, I'm, I'm being sent to Omaha. So, uh, but it was, uh, it was a great experience. And then uh, I felt really good about, uh, having an opportunity to pitch in the big leagues. And sure enough, uh, I think in late May of that 88 season, I got called up and was, uh, was here to stay. So it was uh, a little bit of a different route, but everybody has different routes to get to the top. And it was uh, something that was certainly uh, fulfilling for me and very rewarding and, you know, very appreciative of that. You know, some of the great guys I had a chance to uh, play with and become teammates with, uh, you know, just very special. And one guy that was really, really helpful for me, not necessarily much as my teammate, uh, but more after we were teammates was Dan Quisenberry. So it was really special to have a chance to learn from Quiz. Uh, and then I became friends with Quiz and golf buddies with Quiz uh, after uh, he had left the Royals and for years, um, you know, just in the community and learning from that man, I mean, he'd always yeah. come out to the ballpark and he'd always look me up and, Hey, what's going through your head? You know? And I'd tell him, he goes, Hey, think about it this way. He'd give you a little bit different perspective. Yeah. So. Yeah. He, he was a, he was a character. I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but I, I my favorite Quisenberry mem memory was, was a personal one. Um, I came up, I was living in Manhattan, Kansas at the time. And, and through the fr friends in the PR department, I got, a couple of tickets for myself and a friend and we went in through the, the, uh, not the ticket, not the normal entry, we went in through the, the office entry. So we were there like an hour before the gates opened and, and we're sitting down right behind the dugout and quiz is there, um, warming up and he looks over and he, and he sees us and he realizes that we're not official anything. And so he starts, you know, starts doing this with his, you know, he's throwing and he's wincing a little bit and he starts rubbing his shoulder 
Well, fortunately, I saw him look over before he did that because I think he was trying to get a rumor started that he had shoulder problems just to see if he could get these two, you know, two schmoes who are sitting there watching where they shouldn't have been. Um, And so as he walked away, I said, keep that arm uh, ice down or something like that and laugh. And he's like, yeah, okay. I didn't get you, <laughs> but he was, he was a, I'm, I'm guessing as good a pitcher as he was, he was a better friend and a better teammate just because he was so loose and so uh, you know, just so easy going. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was a special man. Now you stayed all 12 years or the rest, the net, the final 12 years of your career in Kansas city, including re-signing as a free agent twice. Why did you choose to spend the rest of your career in Kansas City? Uh, my family. Uh, I had a, we made a decision to move from Cincinnati uh, here to Kansas City. Once my daughter started school, I have four children and they were all involved in school. Uh, and I, I kind of made a promise to my wife that as long as uh, the Royals will have me, uh, I want to be a Royal. And it got pretty close on my last contract with the Royals uh, because we were, we were going young. I think 99 was my last season. 98, I was, our, I was uh, voted the pitcher of the year for the Royals. So I had a good season. And I did not get tenured a contract. So I'm looking for work elsewhere. And you know, we're, we're real close to signing with the Orioles. And then I get a phone call from Tony Muser, who was our manager. He said, hey, I heard you're going to be signing with the Orioles. I said, yeah, I think so. I said, I, I really wish things would have worked out for me to come back to the Royals. He goes, well, uh, he goes, hold on. He goes, don't do anything. He goes, let me get back to you. So I didn't sign with the Orioles that day. He calls me later that night and said, hey, uh, we, can, we can bring you back and uh, do a one-year contract with some uh, incentives and such like that. Yeah. I took, I, I took a whole lot less money. I mean, a whole, whole lot less money <laughs> uh, in order to make that happen. But uh, you know, that was a commitment we made to our kids and, you know, I did to my family that uh, if I could play in Kansas City, that's where we'd be. And it's it's interesting. I know you can probably say this about just about any player that who has kids, that your kids are important. I, I remember some of my uh, best memories of you as a player was post-game when one of your sons, and you have two daughters, two sons, right? Okay, I don't know which which son it was, but it was after a game, and maybe it was before the game and after you had had your workout or something, and you came in to get showered to get ready for the either leaving the stadium or getting ready for the game or whatever, and your son, who was probably about ten at the time, was he was a mini Monty. I mean, he was doing everything, including you know he'd been out on the field and and including you know getting ready and running going into the shower. I mean, it was. It was Monty and Mini Monty there, and to to have your kid in the clubhouse, that that spoke volumes to me. I think that's probably the time you and I became friends, and because I I might have even said something to you about how cool that is that you're having your sons in the or your son at least in the clubhouse with you, experiencing something that most kids don't get to experience. Yeah, it was really cool. My, that's my son Connor, my older, my two boys, and. My, my younger son, Spencer, uh, he was only four or five years old, so he wasn't old enough to be able to do a lot of the things that my older son was able to do. But it was special to have that, uh, that bond, that relationship. Uh, I had that with my father. Uh, my father wasn't a major league player, but my father coached me, and uh, you know, he was around baseball with me a lot. So one of the things I also committed uh, to doing was kind of what my dad did for me, 
And that was to be coached my boys' amateur baseball team. So I coached both my boys up to the time I went to high school after I retired from baseball. And that was a really, really special bonding experience. And uh, we established many, many friends that are still great friends of ours through baseball uh, when we were coaching uh, my two boys. Uh, talk about your transit transition into broadcasting. How did that happen? Was that something you always thought you would do or did it just kind of happen for you? Well, I mentioned I'd coach my boys, uh, amateur teams. That was for nine seasons, I coached them. And I would uh, always coach them until they got to when they went to high school. Then that's time for the high school coaches to take over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just finished coaching my ninth season uh, you know, with my sons. And I get a phone call from Mike Swanson of the Royals. And he said, hey, he goes, we would like to uh, throw your name in the hat for uh, potentially doing some TV work for us. Would you be interested? I said, I guess. I haven't really thought much about it. You know, I, I guess. So this was, I'm going to say this was probably like in the fall, whatever year that would have been. And um, so I, I said, sure. And I didn't hear a word. I, you know, in fact, I remember seeing Paul Splitorf. Uh, I had to get something from Split. He was on his way over to Lawrence to do a basketball game. I met him uh, over at WHB, and um, I think I had to—I think maybe I had Split sign some autograph things for a charity auction. So I—I I, I see Split, and um, I, he said, "How's it going?" I said, "Well, I think I might be doing some stuff with TV this year." He goes, "Really?" He goes, "That'd be great." He goes, "You'd be good at it." So I don't hear a word from anybody. So season starts, nothing, and about like sometime in May or June. I get a phone call from Kevin Shank, who was the, uh, the uh, producer for Royals Television. And he said, hey, I heard you might be interested in doing some TV work. I said, yeah, that was like back in the fall. I talked to Swanee. He goes, you're still interested? I said, sure, I guess. You know, I'm not, I, I kind of had written it off. Yeah. He goes, can you be here today at 3 o'clock? So <laughs> he goes, I, I said, sure, I, I, I'm available. So I, I, I go to the ballpark. He said, make sure you have a coat and tie on. Uh, we'll see it at three o'clock and we'll, it's, that's when I started. It's just like literally, uh, I guess it found me uh, and I'm so fortunate and, you know, so thankful uh, for the chance to do it. Cause I absolutely love doing it. Um, it's, it's the second best job in baseball behind being a player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you and I, learned, I, I learned so much like, you know, we're, I worked three years with split. And he taught me so much. I mean, it was amazing. He was a, he was the analyst when I was playing, so I knew Split well. But uh, the things that he taught me, the most important thing that Split has taught me about broadcasting is, he goes, you're going to have some good games and bad games. He goes, just like when you're a player. He goes, when you're a player, you go back to the hotel room, or you go home, you have a bad game, and you're, you think about it all night, you can't sleep. He goes, look, he goes, as a broadcaster, he goes, you're going to mess things up a lot. He goes, but don't go home. And, and, and lose sleep over. He goes, there are guys who get paid a whole lot of money uh, to lose sleep over things like this, and you're not one of them. So, <laughs> so I, I learned that, hey, you're going to mess up and just put it behind you and, and wait for the next one. Well, one of the things I think that, and there's probably guys like this with every team, but uh, I'm in Kansas City, so I know about what you do. You're not, I don't, want, I don't want this to come out wrong. You're not trying to entertain the people, you know, on the pre and post, or even in, in the inning, the fourth inning, when you come on with, you know, with the broadcast crew on TV, you're talking about what's happening and more than that, why it's happening. And I think that's something that you bring to the, to the table. There is you understand as a former player, you know, we, we laugh at HUD and, and his HUD isms, 
you know, and, and for those who aren't familiar, Rex Hudler, you know, he's, he's, he's a lovable, and I say this affectionately, a lovable goofball, and he is entertaining. He can talk about the, the analytics of the game, but he does it from a different perspective, a different time, t- different mindset, maybe. I don't know that's, mm-hmm. if that's fair. You do it from an analyst standpoint. When, when, when you come on, you know, if I'm not covering a game, if I'm just watching the game and I hear, you know, fourth inning, okay, we're going to bring in Jeff Montgomery, I, I perk up because I'm going to learn something that I didn't know before about pitching. Um, and, and I think that's something that you bring to the table. You're, you haven't tried to, to develop your delivery into uh, being an entertainer, even though television is an entertainment industry. And actually, so is baseball is an entertainment industry. You're, you're trying to explain why things happen. I think that's really, really cool. Well, that's really why they have an analyst. Um, there's one question I have to answer on everything that I talk about, and that is why. Yeah. Why, why is this pitcher struggling? Why is this pitcher having success? Um, so if I can answer that question, I've done my job. And as a, as a viewer, if you learn one thing uh, from watching that broadcast, there's a good chance you may watch it again. Yeah. So during a pregame show or postgame show, whatever – you know, I might be doing uh, with our broadcast. If I can teach you at least one thing that you didn't know before, I feel like I've done my job. Now you talked earlier about the, as a player, the success of the team couldn't impact how you did your job. And and maybe that's oversimplifying what you were saying, but that was kind of the gist of it. As a broadcaster, you can't let the success of the team influence how you do your job. You still have to analyze why things happen. So I got two questions with that. Um, first, how much fun uh, were 2014 and 2015 from a broadcaster standpoint? Yeah, it was very cool. And to have the opportunity to be part of all of that was very special. I have uh, an American League championship ring and I have a 2015 World Series championship ring that uh, I cherish or mean as much to me as anything I ever did personally on the field. Um, anything that's in my trophy case because of what the organization was able to accomplish. Yeah. And as a broadcast team, even though we didn't do anything per se on the field to, to, to have an impact on that record, we had the ability to impact our fan base. And, you know, to be included in that was a really rewarding, very, very special uh, feeling. And then when uh, the Glass family invited us to go to the White House with the team, uh, it just it was just something that's hard to uh, describe uh, how impactful that was uh, and certainly would love to do it again. I mean, it's something that uh, having the chance to experience at once makes you want it even more. Yeah. And, and, you know, when the team is you know going through these final stages of getting back to being a contending team, um, you know, it just reminds you occasionally that, you know, we're, we're, we're on our way to getting back to potentially having a chance to do this all over again. It'd be so much fun for our, uh, our entire city, our, our fan base, you know, our entire region, really, uh, for what that did, um, much like what the Chiefs did when they won the Super Bowl. I mean, it just brings everyone together and to have both of our, uh, you know, our, and, and, and even sporting, having all these teams, you know, having success, it just gives you a little bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of a prideful feeling. And to see all the, you know, the, all the jerseys and all the uh, memorabilia and everything that people get involved with, with regards to sports, it just, it's nice when your teams are, 
uh, either at or near the top and have a lot to look forward to. Now, you are, as a broadcaster, you're employed by the team. Do you sometimes have to watch what you say? You know, if somebody is really playing poorly, you're, you're an employee of the team. Do you have to say, this guy shouldn't, this guy isn't getting it done. He should be sent down. I mean, I know that's running through your head because you're a baseball fan. You're an expert in baseball. So you'd know that. Is it hard not to sometimes speak your mind when things aren't going well? Well, the, the, the team has never giving us, has never given us restrictions on what we can or can't say. I mean, really? I assume that, um, you know, there would be circumstances or situations where they may uh, elect to, to guide you a little bit, but we, we have no parameters as far as what we can and can't say. Uh, I know our television broadcast team, we're actually all employed uh, by Sinclair Media or, or Bally. So really a team is not our employer, so to speak, but obviously we have you know, somewhat of an allegiance to the club uh, to be part of their team because um, they would be the ones who would elect to, to go a different direction with the broadcasters if they didn't feel like it was uh, being well represented for, the, for what the team is in. But um, you, I think it's important um, to be honest with you know, your assessment mm-hmm. and your explanation on what's going on and uh, whether it be individual or team performances, uh, you have to be realistic about it. Otherwise, I think you look a little bit fake yourself. Yeah, you, you know, you're obviously rooting for the team. You're the home teams, you're the Royals broadcast crew, but you can't be such a homer that what you say doesn't hold any credibility. Yes. That's, um, I mean, and that's, that's, I mean, I can promise you um, when we're doing our, uh, like Joe Goldberg and I, you know, we do our pregame show and, and during the course of the game for that two plus to three hours, we're waiting. I mean, we're, we're pulling as hard as any fan for, for that team to win a ball game. So we can talk about, you know, why they won the game and yeah. show highlights on, on whether it be a walk-off home run from Salvador Perez or it be a, uh, you know, a three-hit shutout by our pitching staff. Yeah. You know, we're, we're looking for those really, really good things to bring to our audience. All right. So if you if Dayton Moore calls you up um, on the next homestand and says, you know, I just I need a break. I'm, I'm having I'm having a really rough day. You're the general manager for a week. <laughs> what would you do? What would be the first thing uh, that you would do? Well, it depends on how much uh, of a bank account he gave me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think Dayton. um he really kind of established back in 2006, the importance of having arms in the organization. And if you look at teams, I mean, we see it all the time when we're playing teams that have the best rotation uh, or the, the best bullpen or whatever it is, those teams are generally going to be at the top of the standings. Uh, I think the focus on pitching is, uh, is so important. Uh, And I think Dayton understands that. And I think he's, uh, doing everything he can to get us back. If you look at that 2018 draft, we got some pretty good arms to choose from as far as moving forward uh, future-wise in this rotation. And uh, I think he's he's got us pretty close to where we need to be. So I think it's all good. Uh, I don't know if I'd change a whole lot. If they gave me a real big bank account to work with, I might be able to find a way to change some things. But uh, <laughs> I know that's not realistically uh, going to happen in a market like Kansas City. Yeah, is so you might make you might try and sign Shohei Otani if you had a big enough bank account. But uh, yeah, I understand that. All right, an- another one that similar to that. If you were commissioner 
what changes would you make to the game of baseball? I don't particularly like the, the shifting and the way things have done, what it's done to change the game. Uh, to me, baseball's become very, very predictable and boring. Uh, there are many more few, uh, there, there, there are many more um, games that you look at and you say, that just didn't have a whole lot going on. Strikeouts, walks, and home runs. Uh, I would do everything I could to create a more traditional game that everybody uh, who are true baseball fans really enjoy. Uh, I think they've gotten away from, you know, we've gotten into such a power game, um, whether it be power arms or power bats, uh, that it's, it's gotten very predictable for me. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see a more traditional baseball game. I don't know the right way to do that, but I know one thing, this all kind of started when they had two things. One, they started using shifts like the extreme shifts. And two, once they started having analytics on launch angles and people understanding uh, the importance of launch angle and hitting the ball, the ballpark, uh, no longer are guys trying to hit line drives at the middle. They're yeah. trying to hit rockets into the bleachers. And um, I think those two things have changed the game dramatically. So with the shift, uh, and I'm with you on that one, uh, would you just say that the middle infielders can't be on the other side of second base? Would that be – because you can't say you – can't, you can't reposition. That's been going on as long as – Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Ted Williams, they sent everybody way over to the right when he was up but they didn't put the shortstop on the, on the first base side of second. Is that, would that be the rule you'd put in? Yeah. I just say you have to have two infielders on, on each side, you know, and you can, you can cheat. I mean, we, uh, you know, I talked about earlier about those pitchers meetings when you talk about, uh, you know, how you're going to pitch guys. Well, we knew we we're going to pitch guys uh, away or in or how we're going to do it. But that's the whole thing. It's like, Hey, if I'm going to play a guy away, in other words, I'm going to play him the other way. I got to pitch to that. I have yeah. to pitch, pitch him away. So it'd be pitch him away, play him away, or pitch him in, play him in. And I think that was kind of the, you know, that's, 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 that was our degree of shifting, but it might be one or two steps to the right or one or two steps to the left. And, uh, you know, that was, that seemed like it worked just fine. You know, it, it yeah. was, it was just, uh, it was, it was a more traditional game and, uh, hitters especially were rewarded for that, that line drives. I mean, yeah. now you see guys hit line drives and, uh, you know, they're throwing their bats in the air because they had the guy standing exactly where he hit his line drive. Yeah. So, so and you were a pitcher, not a hitter, but you understand the game well enough and you know hitters well enough. Why, when the, when the shortstop is in the normal second base position, the uh, second baseman is playing the softball position of Rover, <laughs> you know, in short right field. And the third baseman is in the shortstop position. Why don't more hitters just whether they have to bunt or just slap it to the, to the left side. And again, I'm, I'm thinking of a left-handed pull hitter. They, it's, we see that more with lefties than with righties uh, because the first baseman still has to stay close to the bag. Why don't more left-handed hitters, punch it the other way. We saw that with Moustakas when he finally did that in 15 and 16, his batting average went up because they couldn't overshift like that. Why don't they do that? I, I wish I had a good answer. I know if I were a hitter, I would I'd find ways to take advantage of that hole. Um, but again, I think they're looking for 
uh, ability to launch a baseball and try to hit the ball in the gap around the ballpark uh, more so than ever. And I think the opposing teams have said, hey, uh, you know, if you want to hit a single, we'll give you the single. We don't care about the single. We just don't want you to hit the ball in the bleachers. Yeah. So uh, I think that's probably why uh, I, I bet each row would have had a field day, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, the way they play game today. Well, it's why it's why teams don't overshift on guys like Whit Merrifield today, and and there's guys on every team that you can't overshift because if you leave it op- leave a hole open in that spot, they'll hit it there, and if you leave a hole open in this spot, they'll hit it there. Uh, and I and to me, that's that's a more fun game to watch because you don't know what's going to happen if you got a left-handed hitter up there, a left-handed power hitter, you know he's either going to ground out or hit a home run or strike out, and that's. Yeah. And that's it. So I, that goes back to your thing that it's become more predicting and boring. Um, yeah. I always like to wrap up the interviews with with two things. First of all, we've talked a little bit about your family, but just tell us what your family's doing these days. Um, are you a grandpa yet? Yeah, sure enough. I have four children, two boys, two girls. Uh, my oldest daughter, uh, Ashley, she has three children and expecting one in January. So that'll be our fourth from her. And then my, my next oldest is my son, Connor. Uh, He's married, has one little boy who's going to be two years old uh, later here in, uh, in August. And um, I've got a son, Spencer, who he is engaged, going to be get, getting married uh, a year from December. And then my youngest daughter is Catherine. And all four of my children uh, live here in Kansas City. So uh, we get a chance to uh, see the children, the grandchildren, and uh, everything's good. There's nothing better than being a grandpa. I've got I've got two with a third one on the way uh, in September, and uh, the two lived. They were both born in Louisville, and 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 you notice I said that correct. Being from that general area, you know it's not Louisville or Louisville. It's Louisville. You just kind of it's one syllable. It's kind of mumbled the way through. But uh, their dad grew up there, and my daughter moved there. But they moved back uh, like three years ago. And so they're the older one's going to be six in September on Frank White's birthday, by the way. Uh, and, uh, the younger one is three and a half and I can be having the worst day imaginable. And that front door opens up and those two little girls come running across the room, grandpa. And my day is perfect. So there is nothing, nothing like that. So last question, I always wrap up with this one and you can interpret it however you want. What is your legacy? I want to be a nice guy. I really do. I, I just, I want people to say he was, he was a nice guy. My dad just passed away about the month ago and he always taught me that good things happen to nice people. And uh, if you're nice, uh, good things can happen. Well, I think you've lived up to that. Hopefully you've got many more years of being a nice guy. Monty, I, I appreciate your time. It's always good to see you out at the ballpark and it's good to be able to connect in this way as well. Well, I certainly appreciate you having the chance to bring me on and be part of your podcast. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.